This is the Parenting for Faith podcast from the Bible Reading Fellowship. Visit parentingforfaith.org for free online videos and resources and an eight-session course all about Parenting for Faith. You can also sign up for news, subscribe to this podcast, and find out about events and training in your area. Welcome to the Parenting for Faith podcast. My name is Rachel Turner, and this week we are uh, starting a uh, mini-series of interviews with my parents because I think they're kind of wise and I learn a lot from them. Uh, So we're going to be interviewing my mom today about what it's like to be a first-generation Christian who's trying to figure out how to spiritually parent for the first time. Uh, We're going to be answering the question uh, about uh, teens and really um, when the kids are getting older and if they start disengaging with church or struggling. uh, We have a youth pastor's perspective on how to respond to that. And as our wild card section, we are going to be doing a mini tiny history lesson about the canonization of scripture, which is basically how was the Bible made? Because at some point you're going to have that conversation with your kids. And I thought I'd just give you that bit of information so you feel like you're a genius when they ask. So let's get started. First, I wanted to introduce you to my mom. Here's my mom. Mom. This is my mom. Hello. <laughs> Dad just nodded. <laughs> it was very sweet. She uh, is American, as you may know. While I've lived in this country for 16 years, she's lived in America the whole time. She came over for Christmas, and I wanted to interview her. She has been a teacher. She uh, has uh, taught other teachers. She is incredibly wise. Uh, she trains other people in uh, the uh, history of sort of biblical cultures and archaeology. She's just a super wise woman. And uh, specifically, her childhood, uh, she wasn't uh, in the way that we would think of as parented for faith. And uh, and her context as a child is very different than how she chose to raise me. And as a first-generation Christian, uh, there are so many parents that I talk to who struggle with trying to figure out, you know, when you don't have the the bag of tricks to pull from that you were raised with, how do you form a whole new life? And I just wanted to interview my mom to get her perspective on uh, how she as a parent chose to proactively parent for faith when she wasn't, um, when she was a child. Looking at the way I was parented, I I ended up in a family that had a lot of formality and had a a lot of tradition to it within their Christian life. And so we were at a church that had lots of things to do. And I noticed that for my parents and my parents' friends, maybe not the whole church, but at least the group I was around, they had this form and tradition that they felt really safe in, but it didn't translate into anything at home, and I noticed it didn't translate into anything in their life. And so there was this uh, this set of traditions that, in my mind, God kept telling me, and I kept feeling, even as a child, that this was empty. And it just felt empty and not meaningful. And so as I became a young teenager, it continued to feel that way because I started doing what they were doing. I was following all the forms, I was doing the traditions, but there was something missing, and I saw it missing in their lives. I saw it missing in my life. And then I didn't know what it was. I was a kid. I just kept saying, this can't be it. And then when I was 16, I finally was introduced to the gospel, and I understood the missing part for me was uh, a relationship with God. And so I took that relationship with God, and all of a sudden, I the Bible made sense. 
and everything about uh, uh, my experience had more meaning. And so for me, my life changed immediately. I understood who God was better. I could read the Bible. And then I saw that missing piece that was in my life. So when I was married, had you, the only thing I knew that was meaningful was my own personal relationship with God and how much His love was, how much His Word was truth. And from that point of change, I then uh, could look back on what my old life was in my home and understood that emptiness that God was trying to show me what was lacking. And I could say that was not what I wanted to replicate. But I also found such a power in seeing how God uh, used that to help me understand and draw me to himself and that he used all of my experiences to say, don't look that direction, look this direction. And so I don't find that useless because without him pulling at my heart and saying there was something missing, uh, I might not have come to that knowledge of God at that time. So I don't find that uh, a lack of fruitfulness in my life. I found that a valuable thing. And it also taught me then that God can work in someone's heart like mine, even within an environment that's not Christian. And that was very, very sweet for me. So then I felt an empowerment that God can work in anybody's life, in any family, at any time, and draw that person to God, whether it's my family or uh, you know anyone else's, because he's not bound by the circumstances. And so even within my circumstances, there was good that came out of it in the end, because those circumstances brought me to God. And so then as I move forward with my own family, I know that God can work in any circumstance, in any family, in any way, and I don't have to be the uh, the complete arbiter of the experience that draws someone to Christ, because my parents weren't that for me. God was that one for me, even in that. And so as this, as with you, it was I got to enjoy sharing experiences with you and and knowing that God can take a little bit from this, a little bit from that, a little bit from that, and weave that into pulling your heart toward Him, as He did with my circumstances, and that God's the one that picks and chooses how to weave uh, circumstances to draw a heart to Him, and that it was not up to me. It was up to me to say, this is so cool, I learned this about God, and I can start from the point that I had a relationship with Him and move that forward and say, I've learned this about God, let me show you different ways how, and then I then it's still up to God to take parts of that and weave it into your life. So I learned it wasn't up to me, I learned God can work in any home situation, and all I can do is start from what I know and move forward and say, let me give you some experiences this way. Today's question is a common question, and yet we have uh, somebody else's answer to. Today's question is, well, essentially, do I make my kids go to church? But more specifically, what do I do if my teenager seems to be disliking church and disengaging from church and and not wanting to go. Now, my answer to this question is the last episode uh, in the Parenting for Faith course. It's all about how to help your kids engage with church, including teenagers. So my answer is out there. But as I was talking to Josh Lees for the interview, uh, a youth pastor that I've worked with for many years, uh, he had a slightly different answer that I, I really thought was provoking. So uh, here is Josh Lees, uh, an experienced uh, youth pastor's answer to how do we respond when our kids are struggling with church. I think there's some important questions you've got to ask. 
why do they want to come to church is a really important question and to have an honest discussion with them about that it might be the things that they find really boring are things you find really boring it might be more profound than that it might be actually they have really serious questions about god and faith and sometimes those questions aren't being answered they're not being discussed and i think making sure that we provide a place for those questions to be engaged with seriously is really important i think sometimes young people don't want to go to church because they might not have friends for an age and that's really valid i think if we think about us as adults going to a church with no one our age we might feel really uncomfortable about that too sometimes it might be trying to find um a youth group or something like that that our young people can join in with and sometimes it's about encouraging them to press on that life in community is really hard and if we're all honest all of us struggle with church at different points and trying to support them in that and to see church as something that they are part of as well they contribute to it and encouraging them in that and I suppose that goes back to some of the risk taking as well getting them to be honest with their youth leaders if they have them um, people in their church and and getting involved you brought up a good point not every church has a youth pastor or even a youth program does that doom if you don't have a youth program at church does that inevitably mean your kid's going to walk away from church because there isn't a youth program? How, how do you as a parent cope with mm-hmm. the church that doesn't have a youth program? No, there were only two other kids in my church and they were my brother and sister. Um, and, you know, being real about that, that was really tough. Um, but I think one of the things I'm really grateful for for my parents is they made space to take us to other youth clubs, to take us to... Um, other events that we could connect with to talk about the services with us at home and to ask questions that were maybe more on our level if they weren't getting asked and we found as well that even though there weren't any other kids that some of the adults really started to look out for us and we really respected them and and they felt more like family in the end and I look back really fondly on those years and so absolutely if you know, if, if people have kids in a church and they don't have any other friends for their own age, that doesn't doom them at all. It's harder and it's fine to be honest about that and it's fine to talk about that, but absolutely that's not a that's not a barrier. Welcome to the wild card section. Uh in this session I just wanted to give you a bit of information. This is like a proper new information thing for you because I feel that sometimes our kids ask questions and we're not quite sure about it because we haven't had the time to like think about it. So today I wanted to just talk a really brief overview of how the Bible was made. How do we, how do we get the Bible that we have right now? Because we have storybook Bibles and all the word Bibles and all the things that we have our kids with. And there's maybe something that you want to frame for them of, of how did all of these different books come together into the thing we have now. So you have to think about what it was like right after Jesus came. Jesus came, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven. And 
At some point, all of his followers were like, whoa, the Holy Spirit came. They were scattering across so many different countries, uh, planting churches and doing things and trying to figure out Jews and Gentiles. They had all these confusing things going on, and they began to write letters to each other. Uh, the church fathers began to write letters to encourage and support and give advice and wisdom, and people were writing down their memories of Jesus, and it was all flying around. But it was just all flying around. Uh, the Old Testament had been closed. The Jewish people had gone on this journey of deciding, you know, what is scripture, what to put your feet on, what to memorize. And so between 400 and 100 BC, they had done all of their absolute deciding about what is scripture and what isn't. Uh, and even when the uh, the Middle East was taken over by the Greeks. Uh, then the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, which is the Old Testament Bible that Jesus had. So when he was quoting scripture, he more than likely was was quoting the Septuagint, the Greek version of it. Uh, so the Old Testament was pretty solid for the, for the early church, but it was the the New Testament this this just collection of letters and stories and memories of Jesus that they were trying to build an understanding of who God was, who Jesus was, and what that meant for them. How do you do that when you actually don't have a set of writings that you absolutely know is right? Um, even now, when we look back at the early record, we can see that there are over 70 pieces of writing that claim to be gospels, 70. And so you had all of these different stories, some vastly contradict each other. And so how do you do that? How do you provide for an early church who needs something to put their feet on, who needs to know what is right and what is wrong? And so uh, around around 100 AD, there was this ship owner guy who was like, I'll solve this problem, and sort of grabbed together a bunch of writings, put them into a sort of conglomeration of it and was like, hurrah, here's scripture, and then sort of wrote his own bits too. And the church fathers were horrified and were like, whoa, 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 if anyone can do that, we probably should do that. So they began to talk about it and get together and we began to see this like 300-year refinement of scripture. Sometimes they all got together and had big debates. Sometimes they just talked about it. And you can see in the bishops' letters to each other, uh, the lists, they're like, hey, what 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 kind of list do you use? And they're like, I use these lists. And they're like, oh, interesting. I use these lists. And you can sort of see this progress of them defining more and more and more what they use. And eventually they started getting together in councils. And by 397, we see sort of councils coming together and of church, wise church people going, okay, let's Let's get a thing. Let's like nail this thing down. And so they had to come up with criteria. What criteria would you use if you were on this council? What would you sit around and go, okay, let's sift through these hundreds of letters and reports and and concepts of Jesus and, and how do we decide what is right and what is wrong hundreds of years after Jesus walked the earth? And they decided on three criteria. One was it written by people who actually knew Jesus? Um, was it one of his apostles, one of his disciples? Was it was it somebody who was there, or was it someone who sat down with someone who was there and wrote down what they said? So that was one. Authorship was really big. Uh, Hebrews, we still don't one hundred percent know who wrote Hebrews. And therefore, it was it, it. There was a debate about whether or not Hebrews was going to get in because it didn't fit one of the three criteria. They decided to let it in. Uh, number two uh, was, is it consistent with the other scripture? Is it consistent with the Old Testament? Is it consistent with uh, with the other bits of scripture that we're feeling is scripture? Does it, does it make sense or is it wildly different than everything else? And number three was, 
sort of the wisdom of the church. Is it in general use? Can you look at India to Egypt to Greece and see that churches all over have generally accepted that this feels right, that this is scripture. And when all three of those things came together, they thought, yep. So if, if the gospel of Jobab was only being used in uh, southeastern Egypt, then they were like, mm, I think probably not, because like other people have thought, no. And so they just took these three. Is it is it a good authorship? Is it consistent with scripture? Is it in general use? And refined it down and refined it down and debated and talked and talked and talked about it. Uh, Revelation came a bit later, not in 397. It was sort of in there, but it really sort of got solidified around 500. But it, it became something that we could grab onto and put our feet on and say, this is what we feel is scripture. This is what is going to improve my life, is going to speak God's words to me. And so between this Old Testament wisdom and this New Testament wisdom, it got translated into Latin, it got translated into English. Uh, eventually, it is the Bible we have today. There are extra books that didn't quite get in, but some uh, churches feel are still useful and wise. They're called the Apocrypha, some are the Pseudepigrapha. They they are extra books that some churches use. Some have them sort of uh, in their in their Bible books as a sort of extra little section. Some you know have them as a separate book, and uh, there are those that you can look up. You can just type in uh, apocrypha or pseudepigrapha, and those are the ones that people said. I don't think this is one hundred percent scripture, but I do think it's interesting and helpful, and so people put that in there. But our 66 books of the Bible were solidified a very long time ago by a bunch of wise people who had to sift through and form something for us to put our feet on because in the early church didn't have it. So there you go. You are now wise and smarter than you were before. Uh, or maybe you all knew that and are just rolling your eyes at me. But uh, as you uh, pick up storybook Bibles and as you read the Bible to your kids, uh, talk about that and say, you know, I'm so grateful that um, some wise people sat down before and prayed and said, God, what is your scripture? So that this isn't just something that was written that we question. This is hundreds and hundreds of years of wise people praying and seeking and they put it together for us so that we can read God's words. Isn't that great? So have a good week, and uh, I'll talk to you later. Bye! Now's the time where we give you a question to start an interesting conversation with your kids. And today's question is around this whole books of the Bible thing, because they sat down and argued for a long time, as you know, about what books should go in the Bible. So if your kids, if everybody individually in the, your family could answer this one question, what is to you the most important book in the Bible? Like, if you could only have one book that you read from the Bible uh, and you couldn't have access to any of the others, what would the one book of that Bible be for you? Thank you for downloading the Parenting for Faith podcast. A new episode will be released next week. And why not look at parentingforfaith.org to watch the free eight-session course, to get in touch, or to find out about training and events near you. Music